Well, good morning. First day back and forget all the equipment I'm supposed to bring up here. It's good to be with you this morning and uh, welcome. If you're a guest here with us, we hope this is a, uh, a day where you're focused on the worship of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the exaltation of the Father, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit here among you as we pray and sing and study his word, which is what we're going to do right now. But if you have a little one uh, up through grade four and you'd like them to be at an age-appropriate service, they can go downstairs right now. Teachers will meet them right there in the foyer, and you can pick them up when we're all done downstairs, and they will have a lesson prepared for them and for their little hearts that they might hear the word in uh, topics that, and in language that is ministering to them. For the rest of you, turn in your copy of God's word, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Would you do that? 1 Corinthians 13. I apologize for it's a little warm in here, not exactly sure why that is. We're going to set some fans up and get some air circulating around and we will run down the source of that trouble. Of course, it could be that just it's 95 degrees already outside and, and uh, only about 1130. It's good to be back with you today in the study of God's Word. It's been a great summer. Some of that time we have spent on vacation, some of the time we've had uh, ministering with our children and having our children's uh, program uh, minister to us last week and then uh, just the joy of sending Eli and Jess off to uh, Camdenton, Missouri, where they are beginning their training for New Tribes missions. And so just a really rich time. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, uh, John. Thank you, Daniel, for bringing the word to the congregation during the time and some of that time when we were gone. What a blessing that is to have men, other elders who can give the word out and edify and encourage and reprove, correct, instruct all those things that are part of giving the word out. We are in a continuing study. If you've not been with us, we are continuing study through the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. We've titled that study, God's Plan for a Healthy Church. Uh, in particular, we are studying spiritual gifts, which is where we are now in uh, chapter 13, and the more excellent way. The whole study, though, has been very instructional for us and beneficial study for us as a church, giving us an opportunity for greater maturity, greater effectiveness. If your uh, interaction with me is, is any indication of uh, how we're moving along in the study. It's been a blessing to you as it has been to me. Again, you're held captive by what I want to learn and what the Lord is teaching me, and so this is where uh, the Lord has ministered to me, and so I'm passing that on to you. We've labeled this study uh, God's Plan for a Healthy Church because really from chapter 1, verse 10, all the way to chapter 16, verse 9, and of course as we move on to, the, to 2 Corinthians, we'll have some of the same issues. Paul addresses problems that really inhibit uh, the growth and effectiveness and good health of the church. And some of those were pretty bad, and he gave us, uh, he gave to us really solutions to those issues. Uh, some are preventative, some are corrective. And so as we worked our way through, we've seen some of those things. And I want to highlight some of those things that we have looked at. It's been about 70 messages. We've been in just less than two years as we've worked our way through this marvelous book. And so I want to talk about some of those things because they're so important and it's easy to forget them in the shuffle of all that we're doing and everything that we have learned particularly recently as Paul moves his way into this language of love the understanding of love and its effectiveness and really its integral part it plays in the ministry of the church uh, these other things then come into uh, clear focus and so uh, it's so important for godly living those things that we have learned that we'll make sure that we look at them again really beginning as we divided our sections up really beginning in chapter 1 verse 10 all the way to chapter 4, verse 21, Paul's topic was dealing with errors regarding division and faction and complaining in the church. Uh, this is something, of course, that plagues the church all along from the first century all the way through today. It's very easy as we are one of the most, uh, we are probably the most diverse group of people that meets together uh, because the Lord brings us to salvation from all kinds of backgrounds. You sit next to and minister with people you perhaps never would have befriended had you not come to faith. Uh, they perhaps were not like you. They don't have similar backgrounds to you, similar philosophies of life, and yet the Lord brings us together, and of course that can lead to, if we are not careful, a, a, uh, an attitude, a, a, an undercurrent of division and faction and complaining. And Paul was able to apply the principles the Holy Spirit revealed through him a number of places here as we looked through this passage, and he made it very clear that there were really no grounds for that type of behavior in a mature believer. So it just appeals back to, hey, are you mature, are you grown? Or are you still carnal? And uh, they sadly are the marks. This type of behavior is the marks of immaturity and carnality. And as he moved through those passages, we were able to see Paul really clearly clarify his relationship with the church as a spiritual father, 
And Paul applies it to himself. He applies it to Apollos. Apollos said those who lead the church. And so we were clear how that's supposed to be set up, and we were able to look at all of that with a really broader application to every single believer. And this, uh, this, this idea of the characteristics of spiritual father and what we saw in Timothy and all of those things, very important. And in the fullest sense, it really applies to the entire church that we are to be about uh, leading people to Christ, witnessing, leading people to Christ, and producing spiritual offspring. And so it was a really great transition from Paul as he talks about his relationship with the church, his relationship with Apollos, his relationship with Timothy, and then he really applies that to the whole church. We're also able to see, and this is very important, a real future accounting of what has been done with our lives after salvation. And those messages I don't think come enough to the church in general, and particularly to the modern church, that there is a real judgment seat of Christ, a beam of seat judgment where those things that we do are going to be evaluated. The spiritual house is being built. We looked at that. As you live your life post-salvation, you have begun to build a spiritual house. You may not have realized it, which is really irrelevant at this point, uh, because it is the truth. You may not have realized it's the truth, but that's what you've been doing. As you have functioned as a believer in life, you've been building a spiritual house. Paul says he laid the foundation, which is Christ, and upon that foundation, everything you do after salvation has built upon that foundation. And the spiritual house is being built by each believer, and material used for the house could be gold and silver and costly stone, wood, hay, or straw, depending on the type of work that's being done, the attitude that is brought to bear on the work, and the obedience shown during the time of your life here on earth. The spiritual house is going to be tried by fire, and we saw that right towards the end of chapter 4, spiritual chapter 3, rather, the spiritual house is going to be tried by fire, and in the future, and that's a real date set already, whatever you've built is going to be tried by fire, and that day can be a day of rejoicing, as you see what survives the wood, hay, or the, the wood, hay, and, and straw, which will be burnt up, or the gold and silver and costly stone, which will remain. And as we talked about that, we realized that perhaps there's some times in your life you realize you haven't been walking faithfully with the Lord, and you realize that uh, you might have put a wing on that was made out of those latter uh, things, wood, hay, and straw. And so what we want to do is evaluate how we're doing things, the attitude we're bringing to bear, how obedient we've been uh, as we respond to God's prompting from his word, and then correct that building and, and the way that we're doing it so that we might see more remain in that day of reckoning. Paul cared about this church. He cared about them enough to bring them into conformity to the proper pattern of behavior in the church. And so he brings these things, these very important and sobering truths to bear in the church. And then from chapter 5, verse 1, really to the end of the chapter, we went through the topic of purity. It gave the church principles in dealing with errors regarding immorality inside the church. And Paul identified the problem in the church. That problem was unrepentant immorality. And really a broader scope we saw in verse 11. Uh, he says, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. So speaking inside the church, relationships inside the church, those who claim to be Christians, he, what we see is what's going on is not only are they tolerating immorality in the church, they're also associating very closely with people who call themselves believers. If they're, He says, don't do it if, you're immor if there's an immoral person, a covetous person, an idolatrous person, a reviler, a drunkard, a swindler, not to even eat with such a one. That's obviously what was going on. Paul clarifies what should be going on. And then he gave the church the proper attitude towards immorality, which is mourning and sorrow over sin, not just kind of shoving it under the rug or not looking too closely at it or not really worrying about it. The Lord will take care of it. He's given the church the mandate. You've got to take care of it. He gave the church the proper response, which is removing unrepentant members from membership, placing them in the realm of Satan's influence. And he gave the church the purpose of all of that interaction, very difficult things to do inside the body. Because he, he was clear that for the individuals, that was for the destruction of a physical body. So some hardship that will come on them for the purpose of restoration to godly living. The purpose also was it helps the church see the real issue, which is uh, this appropriate action, is it simply to purge out the negative influence and the permeation of negative things inside the church. And so very clear teaching. Paul starts early with the church and says, listen, these are the things that plague you. This is the way you have to deal with these things. And among other things, we came away really with a renewed commitment as we looked at that to be sensitive to the purity of our own life. And that's where you start, being real, asking the real questions, taking a hard look at where you are. We saw also that we're, we're to be sensitive to the lives of the people who are around us, certainly for their benefit and for the health of the whole church. And with a renewed understanding that as we do these things, we're going to see the church operating in the power of the Holy Spirit and leading people to Christ, uh, discipling them. And when that, as that happens, the name of Christ is honored.
That can't happen. If there's immorality in the church, Paul says, it can't happen if we just kind of tolerate it and kind of let it go and we're just kind of associated with immoral people and covetous people and idolaters, revilers, drunkards, swindlers, those who call themselves believers, act like that. Those, that has to be identified and that has to be uh, corrected. And then we move to chapter 6 and verses 1 through 11, very important passages for us. Paul led by the Holy Spirit to deal with a testimony. So he had to deal with errors regarding conflict resolution and taking other believers to court. And really what this was is just the church falling into the pattern of behavior that marks the world. So how does the world deal with certain things? The church was dealing with each other that same way. And you can always find uh, your first indication as you think about something that happens, some offense, something that goes on, you've been defrauded, whatever. And if your first indication is to deal with another believer like the world would deal with another person, then you're on the wrong track. And Paul wants to correct us right away. And so... Um, really, among the many instructions Paul gives to the church in this area, the main principle that we came away with was that the church is different from the world. We don't play the way the world plays. We don't work according to their rules. Believers are the sons and daughters of the kingdom. And you're going to rule with Christ, Paul says. So if you're going to rule with Christ, and you inherit a kingdom, and you're co-heirs with Christ, and all these things are true about you, and you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, and the wisdom to deal with issues. And Paul says, you don't have to play the way the world plays, and you shouldn't be doing it. That's a testimony violation. People are looking at that and saying, what? How could you possibly be a Christian and taking other believers to court? The, the church was acting like the world. And Paul reminds them that they, the world's not going to get a kingdom. And the world doesn't have the capability that believers have. You're two completely different groups. And he reminds us that our salvation, listen, and our lifestyle are not two different things. Our salvation influences that lifestyle, and the way we react has got to be different. And then from verse 12, really, of chapter 6, all the way to the end of chapter 7, uh, Paul uh, deals with the use of the physical body, really singleness. He deals with divorce and remarriage and errors in the church regarding immorality and marriage and divorce and all those things. And we spent a lot of time there. We won't go back through all those things because we took in Matthew 19 and a lot of other teaching in the Old Testament that deals with divorce and remarriage and, and singleness. But here's the thing. Paul says, listen, as it relates to the use of the body, Paul makes it clear that God judges each one's work and you belong to him. It really dovetails back into chapter 4 that we looked at. Paul, Paul's really affirming, listen, you belong to the Lord. He purchased you. And we saw chapter 6 that he bought you and the price he paid was the blood of his son. The body that you have, if you're a believer, it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. And he has seen fit to come and dwell in it. And that should make a difference But what you do with your body. It belongs to the Lord. If you call yourself a believer, then immorality shouldn't be there. If you call yourself a believer, impurity shouldn't be there. Because your body belongs to the Lord. And before Paul can deal with marriage, before he can deal with singleness, in chapter 7, he has to help the church understand the use of the physical body. So he says, listen, glorify God in your what? In your body, which is the Lord's. What you do with your body, you give God glory with it. You praise God with it. You make his attributes clear with your body. Make it a temple, he says, of worship. And then, talk, then Paul moved into some freedom because, you know, there's always that idea, well, what I'm doing is really not all that bad, or, or I have the freedom. I'm not condemned. I'm a believer. I'm not condemned by what I allow. And Paul begins to introduce this topic we're going to see dealt with much more clearly in chapter 8 through chapter 10. But as it relates to freedom, Paul says, listen, you have, uh, you have freedom in Christ. Make sure that you're not being robbed by what you allow. Make sure you're not being brought into the power of what you allow in your life. And so he's, he wants to make, be, be sure that they're not being fooled in their perception of the truth. And that happens a lot, isn't it? It's easy to fall into a certain pattern of behavior and you begin to be fooled by what you've allowed and your perception of the truth has been uh, changed a little bit with the circles that you're running in, the friends that you've allowed in your life. Your perception of what the truth is and how it applies to your life has begun to change and you begin to make reasons why it's okay to do what you're doing. But Paul wants to bring him back to this starting point. Misusing the body that uh, will be raised with Christ. That's not what you're supposed to do. Abusing the body that was made for the Lord. Profaning the body that's joined to Christ. Immorality does all those things. Paul says, listen, immorality is a sin against your own body. All other sins are sins on the outside of the body. But immorality is a sin against your own body. You're destroying yourself at your core. Ruining the temple where the Holy Spirit dwells. These are all things that Paul went over with us. Acting like you own you when you don't own you. See, So no matter what the situation... These things apply. Paul had to deal with this first in Corinth as every church must deal with it and every individual believer has to deal with these issues. And then beginning in chapter 7, we're able to see really a Q&A time with Paul regarding marriage and singleness and divorce. And then we get to chapter 8 and we work all the way through chapter uh, 10, verse 33. 
And he says this, he says, listen, he's going to tell the church that some of the actions that are presently marking their life within the bounds of their freedom are not bringing good results. And instead, they may be very, very costly. And some references and freedoms and stuff that Paul is using, things that are being exercised in your life that are not building up your spiritual walk. They're tearing it down. And we were able to see really an overriding principle as it deals with freedom. Paul comes to this freedom issue because this is misused much in the church. I'm free in Christ. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. There's no way that I can sin and then become cast away. And so people say, well, then it's okay to do these certain things. I can add these things to my life. And so some of the questions that need to be asked, Paul adds to their topics. And he says, listen, some of your preferences, some of your freedoms presently being exercised in your life are not very building you up. They're not building up your spiritual walk. They're tearing it down. And we were able to understand that the overriding principle in freedom is that when you're thinking about what you're going to do, make sure it's going to positively affect those around you. So most, most of the time, people who are strong in Christ will say, hey, uh, I'm a believer. I understand my freedom. I understand I'm not condemned. I understand that uh, I'm allowed to do many of these things. And so uh, people will say, listen, I can do it. And if you don't like it, too bad. Or time to grow up. Okay, you see me doing it. You don't like it. That's, that's, uh, you're welcome to disagree, but I'm free to do what I want. But Paul puts all the onus on the strong believer. And he says to them, listen, if you're allowing freedom, these things that are free, that you're free to do in Christ, these are things that God has neither forbidden nor commanded you to do, so they fall into a gray area. You add these things to your life. The responsibility that you have is to ask the question, how does this affect the people who are watching me? How does this affect the people who are around me? And we saw that the main responsibility of care falls on those who would consider themselves strong believers. So if the freedom that you're enjoying creates questions about your testimony or causes believers to question their conscience, you have to limit your freedom in that area. And as it relates to these gray area decisions then, things that are neither forbidden nor commanded in Scripture, those freedom in Christ issues, Paul said, we should test them this way. What you allow in your life should make the attributes of God clear. It's your business, your business, not to offend it's your business. And so Paul says, as you make these decisions and you do these things and you add these things to your life and you involve yourself with them and whatever it is, is through that through the course of your life. As long as the Lord has not forbidden them or commanded you to do them, they fall in a gray area. Your overriding principle is, it's my business not to offend. It's my business to make sure that I'm not causing someone else to stumble. It's my business to take a look at this and make sure that my freedom is not going to cause somebody else a hard time. I'm not going to throw up a roadblock with the things I allow in my life so that the unsaved world watches me and then wonders if I'm any different than they are. See? So as you think about those things, those freedoms in your life, beloved, think about this. As the world watches you do them, would they be able to determine that you're truly a believer? Or would you have to go through a, you know, 20 minutes of explanation why it's okay for you to do what you're doing? Because that's the overriding principle there. How does it affect those who are around you? Everything you do, everything you allow, is to be for the furtherance of the gospel. That's how Paul ends that passage. So it should put no roadblocks up that would block that end result. Now you get to chapter 11, verse 1, really to the chapter, end of chapter 14, and this is the section that has to do with conduct in the church. We're currently in the middle of this section. And here we see Paul's commentary on what is actually going on and what should be going on when the church meets together. And under that heading in chapter 11, 1, really through chapter 2, verse 16, Paul is going to deal with authority and errors regarding men and women's roles in the church. And that kind of snuck into the church there in the early first century. It's still in the church now, and Paul has to deal with some of these things. And so what Paul does is, really, he affirms a complementarian role of men and women in the church. And some clear distinctions on the order and authority, and he really corrects the throwing off of that order that's going on in this Corinthian church in Paul's time. And so what he does is he takes some time and he makes it clear because we saw that Paul's emphasis was not fashion, it wasn't the way you wear your hair, but instead his emphasis was on the underlying principles of authority and submission based on the unchanging plan of God between God and his son, between his son and man, between men and women. So he lays that foundation and says, listen, regardless of what you think in the culture about what's okay for women to do and what's okay for men to do, God has established a priority and a plan, and that's the one we're supposed to follow. And so what did, Paul did is he showed the church that this structure of men and women's roles in the church is based on principles of the created order, the purposes of God, and the expectation of the angels. He says, listen, this is, 
This is in, this is not just cultural, this is not just this time period where we're having some problems here. Paul says this is based on the purposes of God, this is based on the created order, this is based on the expectation of angels, and Paul isn't done dealing with these issues and these topics and their relationship to what's happening and what isn't supposed to be happening in the church. He's going to deal with these roles of men and women in the church again as we get to chapter 14. And then for verse 17, all, really all the way to the end of, of uh, chapter 11, we were able to really take a close look at, uh, at the communion and, the, and fellowship dinner and some of the errors and celebrating these things that made their way in the Corinthian church. And Paul says in chapter 11, verse 33, very important passage. He says, so then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. He says, if anyone's hungry, let him, come, let him eat at home so that you not come together for judgment. Really, Paul gets into the point of this letter. It really must seem obvious at this point, as Paul has worked his way all the way from chapter 1, verse 10, all the way till now, that the way they've been acting towards one another is completely unacceptable. The same types of issues come back up. These factions between people, disagreements between people that they don't take care of, they're not taking care of the horizontal relationship, and so the vertical relationship is damaged. He says, listen, this, and, and when we move into, beloved, when we move into chapter 13 and we start talking about love, we realize that Paul has moved all the way to this point. He says, listen, you have all these issues going on, and you have all this ability in the church, and all these things are supposed to be happening, and there's all these deeds going on, and people are using their, their gifts. But listen, it all comes down to the foundation of love and how it's being exercised. And so Paul, it's a very important passage, and Paul keeps dealing with these same attitudes. So it's got to be obvious to them by now that the way they've been acting is, it, towards one another is unacceptable. There were schisms between believers, and he taught them about that in the opening paragraphs. And yet they thought they could eat at the table without forgiving one another. They could eat at the table together without, cause, you know, without uh, coming and apologizing or, or receiving forgiveness or whatever it was. They were just thinking about themselves at the fellowship dinner and just sitting with people who were like them and all that kind of stuff that happens, see, in the church when people are acting in a carnal and immature manner. And Paul didn't encourage the members to stop eating a meal together before the Lord's table. And he, and, uh, he didn't say that the Lord's table should be separated from the fellowship dinner, uh, which, uh, you know, in time came to be the practice. And that's how it is at Berean, our fellowship dinners on Wednesday. And we take communion then on the fifth Sundays. He didn't say to do that. He just said, listen, they've experienced the Lord's judgment. You've experienced the Lord's discipline. Perhaps they're in the middle of it because of the way they've dealt with one another. So he just reminds them that the Lord's table is for everybody, rich, poor, slave, or free. And the focus is on remembering Jesus because he did all that he did for those who are redeemed. The focus of that time together is to focus on Christ. And the principles here are not put forth for the church to accept or to reject. Hey, you know, maybe we can take care of these issues between us. Maybe I just, I just don't want to and I'll be fine with the Lord. That's not how it works. In coming together, believers are to correctly evaluate their actions and their attitudes, ask the right questions because God expects discernment. And so they're asking these questions about their behavior, they're asking these questions about their actions and about their attitudes, and they need to get that right. They need to get it right between each other, they need to get it right between them and the Lord, and in the absence of those things, he will, as we saw right at the end of the passage, with his right as a creator, with his right as a sovereign Lord, his right as a loving father, to discipline his children as he sees fit. And that brings us to chapter 12, really chapter, through chapter 14. And here's what he says. Paul's talking about spiritual gifts and giftedness. And he starts with the test of the Spirit. He says, listen, as we, as we saw in chapter 1, early in the chapter, he said, you've been given every gift. The church is fully furnished with the gifts that it needs to function. So there's some, people go, some things going on in the church, so they write Paul a letter, send some people to Paul and say, hey, some of these things are going on. How do we determine what's going on, if what's going on is spiritual or what's going on is carnal? How do we make that test? And so he gives them, if you will, a litmus test of sorts in the opening verses of chapter 12, and he helps them identify false spirituality, and he jumps right into this very important section, which is at the heart of the effectiveness of the church. Spiritual gifts are real gifts. You don't have them apart from the grace of the Holy Spirit and salvation. They are given to a redeemed person to work in harmony with the other spiritual gifts that are there in the body, to benefit the body of Christ, edify the church, and bring glory to the Father. And so he goes on. People have gifts. They have to minister. It's meant for the common good. It's meant to work together. And so the church of Corinth and the modern church have these gifts. But in the Corinthian church, you have this background of paganism, and they come together in the service, and what they have is chaos. And you still have some of that today. So Paul says this, No doubt you have some who would claim uh, to have a spiritual gift, but actually were imposters and deceivers. So Paul wants to make sure they can tell the difference. 
And no doubt you may have some who might be unhappy with the gifts which they had received and, and envy some of those who they regarded as perhaps uh, a greater gift or a more favorable gift. And you probably have some who would be puffed up and make a showy display of, of some extraordinary power and make that the litmus test of spirituality. And in the middle of that, you probably have people with actual gifts, remembering Paul's teaching from before, and using them correctly. So you have this big mixed bag in the church, so Paul has to bring this to bear. And so he says this in verse 1, he says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be unaware. Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant about this. I want you to understand the subject. Three things that Paul wants to make sure they are clear about. Number one, the church won't work without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, as, as active in the church, is imperative for the church to work. There's no power, there's no effectiveness, there's no fruit, there's no conviction, there's no learning apart from the Holy Spirit. Number two, the church can't function as a church without spiritual gifts. That is the way it works. Spiritual gifts are illustrated by the body. Your body works, your body has uh, members that work. That's how the spiritual gifts work inside the church. Apart from it, it can't work. Because the Holy Spirit works through those gifts to animate the body of Christ. And then three, the church can be fooled by imitation spiritual gifts. So Paul's going to go through these things to make sure they understand that the church won't work without this Holy Spirit. The church can't function as a church without spiritual gifts. And it's easy to be fooled by imitation gifts. So he's going to clarify from really chapter 12 all the way through the end of chapter 14 how that's supposed to look. And then Paul helps, helped us identify the gifts of the Spirit. We got to chapter 12, verse 4. He says this, you know, in the church there is this contrast going on between unity within the will of the Spirit and the Lord and, and God and diversity within the varieties of gifts and the varieties of ministries and the varieties of effects. So this is unity, that this is what the Holy Spirit wants you to do. This is what God's purpose is for the church, to work inside the gifts. And there's this diversity because there's lots of different gifts and there's lots of different ministries and lots of different effects from the use of those gifts. So without going through all of this again, we also saw spiritual gifts can be broken down into speaking gifts and serving gifts. And further broken down into permanent gifts and temporary gifts. And if you've missed some of that and you want the background, because there was a lot of background to that teaching, I just ask you to go back to the archive teaching online, really through the, the, uh, this portion of 1 Corinthians 12, and you can get all that background. And then Paul helped us identify the unity of the Spirit, really starting in chapter 12, verse 12. He says this, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. So he's really revealing the Holy Spirit's favorite concept that the believer is in Christ. He's showing this unity of the Spirit. And in this section, we covered the very important concept of what it means to be baptized in Christ. And just as importantly, what it doesn't mean. And in summary, the believer isn't waiting around for some second work of the Holy Spirit. And as we compared Scripture with Scripture, we saw that we're not waiting for some experience of baptism performed by the Holy Spirit to actually have some power in ministry. There isn't anything missing from salvation at the point of salvation. The believer has everything they need and is fully equipped. And then we saw from Ephesians 5.18, if you remember this, it's a passage I use with you a lot. Paul says this, Do not get drunk with wine, for that's dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. It really, really clarifies for us what's supposed to be going on. He isn't speaking of the Holy Spirit's indwelling, because every believer has that at salvation. And he isn't speaking of Christ baptizing in the Spirit uh, to place us in the body and empower the spiritual gifts, because as we've seen, that had happened at salvation as well. And so when we read that verse, what we need to understand is this. Power and effectiveness in ministry don't come from some second work of the Holy Spirit. It comes from consistently living under the influence of the Spirit, as in this passage where drinking of alcohol is used as an illustration of control. So power and effectiveness in ministry come from, then, living under the influence and under the control of the Word of God in obedience to what it says. That's where power, that's where effectiveness in ministry come from. Not waiting for some second work, but instead submitting to, your, to what the Word says and doing what it says. And then Paul says in verse 14, he says, For the body is not one member but, member, but many. Diversity really defines the body. It's at its very essence. You can't opt out any more than the members of the physical body can opt out. So as you think about your involvement in, in the, uh, amongst the body here, you have to find a place to serve. You don't get the option of just kind of sitting and doing nothing, see? You can't be a functioning body if you don't have all the necessary parts. And God is directly and actively involved in crafting Christ's body, the church, to be exactly what he wants it to be. So if you're sitting here and you've been attending for a while, realize that you've been placed here by the Lord, whether you came with your parents or you came as a guest or you were saved and converted and you came, whatever it is, you transferred here from somewhere, whatever, whatever your background is, realize that you came into this body 
The Lord brought you here. You have spiritual gifts. You are to begin to function with those spiritual gifts amongst the other members of the body. And when you don't do it, then we have, we've, we have a, a, a problem, see, because part of the ministry that could be done isn't being done because some members who have spiritual gifts and all do are not plugging them in. And then Paul warns them with a few things as they begin to, to uh, interact and function with one another. He, has, he just says this, listen, whatever it is that's your spiritual gift, don't overestimate your importance. Remember that the parts that don't seem that important are indispensable to the body. And we've seen a lot of that going on over the summer. Just things that people don't see flying under the radar, ministries that are going on behind the scenes that have made a huge difference to our spiritual life. And so just an amazing issue that goes on here. And the parts of the body of Christ nobody sees should be given special honor and attention, just like people do with the parts of the physical body. And then remember, God is actively involved in making sure that every gift is recognized. And then Paul helps us identify the variety of the Spirit. It's a marvelous section. And even though the gifts are different, and people don't choose them, and God is active in all of that, God has and continues to place them in the church. And Paul says, listen, correct your thinking. Paul says, focus on what's important what this whole thing of spiritual giftedness is all about. And then Paul concludes this section with this statement that really is the bridge to his next focus. And he says this, and still, I show you a still more excellent way. What was the way they were doing it? No unity, no, no sense of diversity, everybody seeking the same gift, no sense of sovereignty, thinking they could wait on some gift, and oh, I'll bless the church if I just wait on this gift, this is the one I want. Not willing to accept God's plan, all of that. So Paul says, I'm going to show you an excellent way, which is unity and diversity and sovereignty and harmony. I'm going to show you a more excellent way, and I'm not done yet talking about that, he says. Now look there, if you would, because that brings us really to the place where we are currently in our study. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 1, and I want to read that with you, and then we'll move on and talk about love and, and get as far as we can today. Look at verse chap 1 Corinthians chapter 13, your copy of God's Word, and we will dig into this passage. Paul says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. Verse 3, And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Verse 4, love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag, and it is not arrogant. So you can see all the issues, can't you? Everything he's talked about all the way from chapter 1 all the way till now. Everything that's in the church, right? Unkindness, jealousy, bragging, arrogance, you know, factions, all the kinds of stuff that's there, see? Verse 5. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It doesn't remember what's been done badly against it. Verse 6, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, verse 8. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. Verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. Verse 10, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Verse 11, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. Verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Verse 13, but now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. And Paul bridged the end of chapter 12 right into chapter 13 as the Holy Spirit carried him along. And he says, remember, I show you a, more, a still more excellent way. What was the way they were doing it? No unity, no sense of diversity, everybody seeking the same gift, no sense of sovereignty that God is in charge of all of this, and we're just supposed to be serving you're not willing to accept God's plan. Paul says, I show you a more excellent way. That's unity, diversity, sovereignty, harmony. I'm going to show you a more excellent way, and I'm not done yet. I'm going to show you that the path of the whole plan of the church, ministering for the common good, is the path of love. See, This is the more excellent way. Now, as we said, when you read the passage that we just read, 1 Corinthians 13, it's a passage that's well known. It's one that's pulled out and put on cards and, and stuck on 
on uh, uh, bookmarks and all kinds of things. It's used as a structure for, for marriage counseling and, and really as a freestanding passage. But I think you can see the real power of the passage is found when it's connected in context. There's a church full of people with no sense of unity, a church full of people with no sense of diversity, no sense of sovereignty. They're not willing to accept God's plan. Uh, those with the showy gifts, uh, they're, they're overestimating their opinion of their own worth. Those without the showy gifts, devaluating their importance to the body. Uh, many of them having problems with their own attitude, attitudes with one another, hanging on to offenses, wh whatever it is. See, you got this whole history all through these first 12 chapters coming up to this point. And Paul has dealt with these things, and now he's going to show them the basis for the use of all the gifts, the basis for all the ministry that goes on in the church, how the church is supposed to function, the real solution to these issues that are plaguing the church. In other words, a more excellent way that coveting the showy gifts is to be content with the one you have. A more excellent way than lording it over someone because you happen to have a gift of speaking or teaching or whatever language is. A more excellent way than being proud is to be loving. And that's what he talks about in chapter 13. And he describes it in really beautiful language, the more excellent way, which is love. Probably the most important thing that Paul penned. But it has to be connected here. And it's based on a commandment, John 13, 34. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have an excellent Sunday school ministry. By this will all men know that you're my disciples if you work in the nursery three Sundays out of five. By this will all men know that you're my disciples if you keep your yard mowed and you're clean and you're good to your neighbor. No. By this will all men know that you're my disciple if you have love for one another. Inside the church, the way you function with each other is, the foundation is what? Is love. 1 Peter 4.8 says that it covers the faults of others. Hebrews 6.10 says that it ministers to the needs of others. Colossians 3.13 says it forgives injuries. See, love, and we're going to see this in just a minute, this word love is always connected to action. It's not some warm, fuzzy feeling. It's not some emotion. It's not erotic. It's not any of those things. This is a love that does to one another. Colossians 3.14, we're supposed to put it on. 1 Corinthians 14.1, we're supposed to follow after it. Believers are supposed to abound in it, continue in it, be sincere in it, and provoke one another to it. We see over and over in Scripture, it's to be exhibited towards saints and towards ministers and our families and strangers and enemies, we're going to look at that today, and all men. I gave you this quote last time, I'll remind you of it. Warren Wiersbe says that love is the lubrication between believers as we work together. That's a great, that's a great saying, isn't it? In the course of ministry, there's opportunity for faction and friction and differences of personality Things that plagued Corinth still plague the church today. Preferences, unforgiveness, different gifts, different ministries, different outcomes, misunderstandings, offenses taken, offenses given, immaturity, carnality, authority, and submission, and all that stuff. Love is the lubricant between that stuff. See, All the things that have to go on inside the church. So the more excellent way Paul's talking about isn't some new way at all, but the way he undoubtedly instructed them on when he was there with them. It is based on the command from Jesus. So the chapter then, as you look at the chapter, it's not some detour, it's not some standalone passage, as many people think, you know, some kind of uh, take off on a tangent away from Paul's actual topics that he was trying to deal with. It's essential to his argument. Because he hasn't finished talking about spiritual gifts. He's going to go into chapter 14, and he's going to cover them extensively. He has a lot more still to say about it. But in order for them to operate, they have to operate within this dynamic of love for one another, see? And really, as we look at this more excellent way, it really becomes the hinge that connects chapter 12 to chapter 14. It's the main issue in order to understand Paul's teaching on spiritual life. The truly spiritual life is the only life in which the spiritual gifts can operate correctly. And when it comes right down to it, we saw that a genuine spiritual life is not necessarily manifested by what appears to be spiritual gifts. Did you catch that? When it comes right down to it, beloved, we
we saw that a genuine spiritual life is not necessarily manifested by what appears to be spiritual gifts. You can't judge by the gift, okay? Galatians 5, 22 through 25 really helped us make that jump. I want to read it to you. Verse 22 says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. That's the first one. That's the one Paul says has to be in place for all the spiritual gifts to work. That's the one that has to be in place for the church to work correctly. That's the way you're identified as a disciple of Christ, is the love you have for one another. The first spiritual gift listed is love. Then joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now these, those who belong to Christ, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So a truly Spirit-controlled person is it made manifest by the gift of the Holy Spirit? How, beloved, is a truly spiritual person made evident? What is it? The fruit of the Spirit. You haven't been with me in a long time. I can tell you you're not answering back, okay? We do answer back here. The fruit of the Spirit. It's not the spiritual gift, okay? Listen, it's not just physical. It's not how busy you are. It's not what you can accomplish in a short amount of time in the church. It isn't that at all. That is no indication necessarily that you're spiritual. What's an indication that you're spiritual? For sure. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith. Those are the things that indicate you're spiritual. Because those are spiritual fruit. That proves you're being under the authority of the Word of God. And you're not letting... Not being controlled by other things, but being controlled by the word. These things begin to be produced in your life. If you don't have the fruit of the Spirit, then the gifts of the Spirit, then obviously, are functioning how? They're functioning in the flesh. See? So, as the believer walks in the Spirit... The Spirit produces the fruit of the Spirit. And out of the fruit of the Spirit come the gifts of the Spirit operating in the power of the Spirit. See? And as you pray for your effectiveness of your ministry, you can just start right here. This is a prayer that's been now since we started this study, a part of my own prayer life every day. Father, help me to bear forth the fruit of the Spirit. And the first one is love. And then inside the fruit of the Spirit, help me use my spiritual gifts. Because whatever I do here, and whatever you do, wherever it is, if it's not based in the fruit of the Spirit, so you're not being controlled by the Holy Spirit because you're in the Word, and that fruit is being born, and the first one is love, and we're going to see a better definition of that in just a minute, then whatever it is you're doing, and we're going to see this in just a minute, it's a big zero, okay? Do you understand? According to the Lord's evaluation, it adds up to nothing. So as a believer walks in the Spirit, the Spirit produces the fruit of the Spirit, and out of the fruit of the Spirit come these gifts of the Spirit operating in the power of the Spirit. And so, tying Paul's teaching together, it seems clear, we do not have the fruit of the Spirit manifest. So, and let's just start with the first one. If love isn't manifest, and 1 Corinthians 13, 13, and a host of other verses that we've looked at and will look at, consider it the greatest of the spiritual fruit. If there's no love there, then we can say... That anything that is happening is happening without the fruit of the Spirit. So the believer isn't walking in the Spirit then. And if it's happening apart from the walking in the Spirit, and if it's being done apart from walking there, it is being done in the power of the flesh. And we will see that at best, it's empty of benefit, and it can be carnal, and it can be counterfeit. So all those things then come into play as soon as we try to operate with our spiritual gifts outside the fruit of the Spirit. And it's really hard to know how you hook up with that. And it's really hard for you to evaluate how I hook up with that, isn't it? Because we just look on the outside and say, wow, they're a really good administrator, or man, they can really get the job done. They can produce something, you know, in the summer, or they can do the Sunday school thing all the way through, or they are always faithful to the nursery, or, you know, they really work hard outside. They make things look great. They're just using their spiritual gift. And we look on the outside. It's really hard to hook up with whether or not that fruit of the Spirit is there. But this is the key thing. 
And I think that's the key to understanding this passage in context. It's, it's much more than standalone study for marriage counseling, okay? The church can't operate apart from the gifts of the Spirit, and the gifts of the Spirit don't operate correctly in the flesh. And so Paul refreshes their memory of all of this. Here are the Corinthians with all these gifts of the Spirit. They don't lack anything, according to chapter 1. And many of them are trying to use them without the fruit of the Spirit. So they're not being controlled by the Spirit. So what's being done is being done in the flesh. And Paul says that when it's all done, you have nothing. You have nothing. See? Love is, that, that is the environment of everything. Love allows the gifts of the Spirit. Listen. Love allows the gifts of the Spirit to do the work of the Holy Spirit that he designed it to do. That's it. Let that make its way into your prayer life, beloved. If it's this important for Paul to visit it several times and to really just kind of run it as a thread through everything that he wrote to the church, it's important for us. And if we're going to look at the spiritual gifts and we always try to evaluate it on whether that's important or not important, and we looked all of that before, things that we don't even see going on are indispensable in the church. But really it's, it's, it's before all of that, see? And really, as we thought, as we thought about the, the Bema Seat judgment of Christ, and we just kind of tying these things together, the things that you do if, they're doing, if they're done inside the fruit of the Spirit of love, that's a key indicator that's gold and silver and costly stone. That's a key indicator. And it's a key indicator that if you're doing it apart from the, from the fruit of the Spirit, it's, good, it's wood and hay and straw. Really hard to evaluate it on the outside, and we don't see that spiritual house with these physical eyes. That's a good way to evaluate that personally. Now look back at 1 Corinthians 13, 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Verse 2. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. I'm a noisy gong and clanging cymbal. So not just a zero, but it's just irritating. It's causing agitation to people, see. If I have the gift of prophecy, know all mysteries and knowledge, have all faith, I can remove mountains. These are real spiritual gifts. We're going to look at these next week. Real spiritual gifts. Maximized. But not operating inside the fruit of the Spirit love. I am nothing. I am nothing. See, read that to yourself. Make it personal. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor... There's a gift of giving, generosity there. If I surrender my body to be burned, that's a servanthood right down to giving your life for someone else or for something. I do not have love. It profits me nothing. It profits me nothing. The maximum you could give your life, the maximum material things you could give, it's no profit. It's a wood, hay, and straw type of building. All the gifts of the Spirit, the entire sum of our activities mean nothing without the fruit of the Spirit, love. Did you catch that? Love must be the foundation. Love is the motivation. Love must be the atmosphere in the life of the believer. For any of these other things to be of any use. According to Paul here, it's possible to have the gifts of the Spirit without spirituality. That's what's going on here. That's the exact illustration. He's evaluating the Corinthian church and saying, you have the gifts of the Spirit. You may have them to the max. You may have the gift of giving. You may have this gift of administration. You may have uh, the ability to speak in tongues. You may have the gift of prophecy. You understand mysteries. You understand knowledge. You may have all these kinds of things. And you're functioning with these gifts without spirituality. Because as we noticed before, spiritual gifts don't necessarily indicate spirituality. So catch this. It's possible to do all this work and seem very spiritual to everybody around you. And you can hold all these positions and get all these things done and accomplish projects and whatever it might be. But love is the litmus test. Because it's not just physical work. See, God does not want us running around just doing our own thing. Whatever it might be. And I think we can understand that. It's just really hard to identify that in your own life, isn't it? But that's precisely what Paul wants the church to do. You may have all these outwardly, it just looks fantastic. But what's inside? Because that's what really counts, see? It's really hard to identify, especially if that's how we've been used to operating. If we're used to holding grudges against someone else, but still doing our work in the church. And we're good at that, aren't we? We're good at hiding those things. You know what? It should always... Uh, the Lord's example of prayer to his disciples should also be part of your language in prayer. Forgive me my debt. What's the rest, beloved? As I forgive the debt of everyone else against me. 
You see, this just ties all together, doesn't it? We're so used to operating inside the flesh and doing all those things, and yet our relationship with other people may not be where it needs to be, and we're not even functioning in love, and all it adds up to is wood, hay, and straw on the spiritual foundation of Christ. It's the main thing. Just so hard to identify that, isn't it? Hard to be really honest inside our own heart. Now look at the word love, and we're going to wrap up. Verse 1, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love. Here it's the Greek noun agape. You're familiar with this. I'm sure you've heard this many, many times. It's important to note, and we've already made this uh, note just in kind of a roundabout way. It's always defined by what it does, okay? So if you're saying, okay, do I have love? All right, well, we can figure this out. Paul's going to make it clear here, okay? And what they do, what love does, is always defined by verbs. And we're going to see that as we move through. This isn't romantic love, it's not sexual love, it's not emotional love. This is the love of self-sacrifice. So if you want to know what this looks like, the deeds that you do to someone else, if you truly love them, they're going to be acts of self-sacrifice on your part. There's no use of agape without action. Okay, and you can do that search and you can do that study on your own. There may be feelings, there may be an emotion of love when the action occurs, but the main thing is the action. And when I talk to marriage couples, you know, when they're having some trouble, a lot of that homework is going to be this. You're going to have to start doing these self-sacrificing things to one another because this is what Scripture commands you to do. And then usually out of that, you back back into this feeling of warmness and, and uh, compatibility and love that you would define as an emotional response from the world usually ends up accompanying those acts of self-sacrifice. But the act of self-sacrifice for the other person is the definition and description and illustration of what agape means. First John 4.10 says, it gives us really a great foundation. It says, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the substitute, for our, the satisfaction really is the great word, the satisfaction for our sins. In other words, isn't this great that, okay, how do we define this? Well, let's let God define it for us, and we can go from there, okay? In other words, defining this love expressed from God to us, he sent his son to make our sin payment. And so we, you bring 1 Corinthians 13.4 into this understanding. Look there, 1 Corinthians 13.4. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag, and it's not arrogant. Let's just stop right there. Okay? So if the definition then, it's, it's self-sacrifice, and it's always accompanied by action, and then 1 John 4.10, we have this great foundation of this is love, this is great, then you could transplant the wording. In this is love expressed to others, I overlook faults and extend patience, because love is patient. So it overlooks others' faults. So you can start this right in your own marriage, right? If you really love your wife, you're going to or your husband, you're going to give them patience, and that is, you're going to overlook their faults and extend patience to them, and wait, and you're, you're not, you don't have to exact your revenge or exact your response or whatever it is, see? This is love expressed to others. I actively do works of kindness, so love is patient, love is kind, so I'm doing works of kindness to the other person, which means you're going to need to know what they appreciate or whatever they need, and you do it in self-sacrifice, and it's kindness to them, see? This is love expressed to others. So if we're just using John, 1 John 4.10, this is love expressed to others. I affirm that I trust them. Love's not jealous. You trust them. You trust their word. You trust what they say. This is love expressed to others. I refuse to use comments that exalt myself, so it doesn't brag. So love expressed to someone else is you're not bragging on yourself, okay? You're not exalting yourself. Make yourself look good. That solves a lot of problems in our marriage, doesn't it, guys? Well, you know, I do it like, as if that's the gold standard, right? Love doesn't exalt itself. And this is love expressed to others. I display an attitude of humility, because love is not arrogant. See? And if you love God, you're going to respond with self-sacrifice and love to each other. And according to 1 Corinthians 13, that's what it's going to look like, see? And that's just kind of a preview, because we're going to get into it. As we prepare to close our time in the Word today, I just... There's one more verse that can help us understand this word even more clearly, okay? If you're just kind of, well, I'm not sure that's exactly what it means. Okay, here you go. Luke 6, 27 and 28, what's it say? But I say to you who hear, what's the rest of it? 
love your enemies. Now, agape te, present active imperative verb, okay? That's to love, but I say to you, you're to love your enemies. What's it mean? Well, Jesus gives the meaning, doesn't he? Do good to those who hate you, bless those that curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. Now, how can you get that wrong? Okay, there's no way to argue with that. We come from the positive side. It says, love expressed to others, I'm going to overlook their faults, extend patience. Okay, love expressed to my enemy is what? Same deal, isn't it? Acts of self-sacrifice. This is the love of self-sacrifice. Here's someone who certainly doesn't care for you, okay? Jesus isn't telling his followers to have romantic feelings about those who dislike them. He's, he's not saying, you know, have a wonderful, warm, contented feeling towards this person who hates you. Okay? He's not saying that. Those things are not possible. What is possible, though, is to make an act of self-sacrifice on their behalf. That's what love looks like. So mark this, Luke 6.35 now. But love your enemies. So he comes back to it again. What's that mean again, Jesus? Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you'll be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Isn't that great? So once again, God's the standard. You want to express love. It's going to be a, a love of self-sacrifice. What can it look like? Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Do good, lend, expect nothing in return, and your reward will be great. Somebody's watching. It may not be the person you're doing the good to, but somebody who really counts is keeping track. Now what are you building with? Gold and silver and costly stone, aren't you? That's what you're building with now. In other words, this kind of love is the kind of love that God gives. See, God loves his enemies. He causes the rain to fall on the wicked and the good. Common grace is extended to people who don't even acknowledge God. People in our leadership and our government who hate the Lord and make laws opposite of what his word says. They still receive common grace from God, don't they? They can still enjoy the blessings of a, of a marriage. They can enjoy the fun of a vacation. They can have friends. They can, all of those things, every good gift, what's James say, comes from the Lord. There's no shadow of turning from, with him. He's the one who gives them common grace extended to people. God loves people who hate him. God loves his enemies enough to dive on their behalf. See, let's just bring it right home. We were all his enemies, weren't we? Romans 5.10, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Isn't that great? We were his enemies, and he showed us self-sacrifice. He has the right to give us the direction, doesn't he? Ephesians 2.1-5, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. There's no life at a corpse. There's no good work being done on behalf of the Father, to make us somehow attractive to the Father. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Not only were we God's enemies, we followed his enemy, the one who opposes everything he does, the liar and the father of lies. We did what he wanted us to do, see? According to the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh. So we even showed by our actions we hated the Lord and did opposite of what he said. Indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love which he loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions he's made us alive together in Christ. God gives us the example of that kind of love, doesn't he? Jesus sets the pattern by giving us the definition of that kind of love. Because there's no use of agape without action, and the gifts of the Spirit only function correctly inside the fruit of the Spirit. That's the point of 1 Corinthians 13. It's the most important realization we can have to help us function correctly in the church. The most important. You can think about bylaws, you can think about you know, Baptist distinctives, or whatever it is that you like, okay? But the most important distinctive is what? By this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. That's the most important distinctive. That is what we need most of all, the most important realization we can have to help us function correctly in the church. And as we are functioning, build on the foundation of Christ with gold, silver, and costly stone. See, according to Paul, it really comes down to this issue. It's not, what's the least you'll take? And that's what I'll give. 
okay? I'm not comfortable with doing a whole bunch of stuff to people I know who don't like me. I'm not comfortable with praying for somebody I know that doesn't pray for me. I'm not com He's not asking what you're comfortable with or what's the least you'll give. He's just saying this is the example and this is the main thing. And if you're going to function correctly in the church, this is going to have to be the foundation of everything because it solves all these other issues, see? It solves the whole problems with, with, with communion that he had to deal with, doesn't it? It helps them avoid all the discipline from the Lord because they're functioning correctly with one another and coming to the table appropriately and asking the right questions. It solves all these issues of taking each other to court, right? Other believers to court because, you know, you wronged me. So here's the thing. It really comes down to this issue. Ask the Lord to reveal to you where you are when it comes to love. Whose definition are you using? That's the challenge to you as we move into this teaching next week. How, how radical are you? Do you love those that don't like you? Because in order, you can't just say, yeah, I love them. I love the whole church. Listen, it's acts of self-sacrifice that show that love. You can start with people you know that don't particularly care for you. How radical are you? Do you love those that don't like you and aren't like you? Love would be obvious because you're going to do self-sacrificing things for them. Don't center on how busy you are, okay, how many projects you head up, whether you teach a class or not, or whether, you know, I did that all that in the past. I'm not really involved a lot right now, or, you know, I got burned or whatever. Somebody hurt my feelings. I'm not, listen, level ground here, okay? Love on the one side, acts of self-sacrifice, you know, that are the good things to find love. On the other side, love your enemies even. Exactly the same definition, Okay? Don't center on how many services you are in in the nursery or whatever. Center on if love's there. See how you hook up with that. And then begin to build on that foundation of, with gold, silver, and costly stone. Okay? You bow with me, with you, if you would. Let me just ask you this. It's been a while since I've done this. Are you God's enemy? You may say, no, I feel good about God. I, mean, I, I, I feel real, you know, affinity towards him. That's not, I really... That's not the definition of whether or not you're God's enemy, is it? Whether you have an affinity towards God or you're, you're kind of neutral towards or whatever. God says that while we're in our sin, apart from our relationship with Christ, we're his enemy. So let's define it that way. If you haven't come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, then you are, by definition from the scriptures, God's enemy, subject to wrath and condemnation. That's bad news, isn't it? That's bad news to the, I can have whatever relationship with God I want, I can live however I want, I don't have to conform to what the scripture says. Uh, you know, God and I are good. God says, if you don't have a relationship with Christ, and the indication of that is you begin to produce the fruit of the Spirit, then you are on the other side. You're fooling yourself. You've been deceived. You may even know, you know a lot of stuff about Jesus. You may know a lot of stuff about God. You may be, you know, in the world's eyes, a good theologian. The bottom line is it's a relationship with Christ, and that relationship where you come and confess and repent of your sin and ask the Lord to forgive you of your sin, casting all of your hope on him for salvation, deliverance from this sin that plagues you and all of mankind, that you are God's enemy, but you don't have to stay there, okay? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 says, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, because that's where you are, doing what you want. That's called living in the lust of your flesh. Do whatever you want to do, whatever your body wants to do, that's kind of what you do. If that marks your life, then you're God's enemy, but you don't have to stay there. You can confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, Believe in your heart God raised him from the dead and you will be saved from that attitude and that foolishness and that deception. Will you do that right now? If you've never come into a right relationship with the Lord, you can do it now. It's very simple. You admit that you're a sinner and what you've done is displeased the Lord. You're separated from him just like the Bible says and you're under condemnation and that's right where you deserve to be. Okay? And now, God in his graciousness has provided a substitution for you and his name is Jesus. He went to the cross he bore all your sin on the cross, everything that was against you, died, and then showing he had power over all that sin, was raised in glorious life. And now always lives to make intercession for those who believe. Isn't that great? That's your deliverance. Ask for it now. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to come to your house and worship together, even in the midst of a hot summer day, which has made its way in here. Father, I pray that you bless the reading of your word, the study of it. In particular, this very important concept that love is the key to all of this. And it's not a love defined by us, 
whether we do some certain thing or are good at it or we're just real faithful in doing other things outside or inside or whatever it is. It's really self-sacrificing ourselves for other people. Being kind. Affirming people. Not exalting ourselves. Displaying attitudes of humility. And as we use our spiritual gifts, doing them inside an attitude of self-sacrifice so that they really are effective and can have power inside the church. Thank you that you're at work here. Thank you for the many who serve. Thank you for their desire to walk with you. Thank you for the some who came into your kingdom today who've prayed and asked forgiveness and now have been made right with you, given your Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts to serve inside the church. If you're that person, you've come, there's people who've come to faith today, before you leave, right there in the chair in front of you, there's a response card. Please fill it out and give it to me before you go. Let me talk to you. Be my joy to affirm what's happened in your own life and put you on a path to discipleship and to growth where you can do the things and fulfill the things that you were made to do. So Father, today as we depart and this evening as we come back and begin our new study of 1 John, Lord, we're just so grateful we can be a part of the family. And Lord, help us to be, keep in mind that someday, very soon, your son is going to come back for the church. Help us to be ready. Help us to be found as faithful servants doing what you asked us to do in the way you asked us to do them as we wait on Christ's return. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, whom we love and long to see, and all God's people said, amen.